Ho, 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 it's Go West Young Podcast showing up in your podcast stocking just in time for your holiday road trip. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. Coming up on the show today, we've got two different looks at how companies have bought their way onto American public lands. In one case, multinational mining companies, and in the other, clients of Interior Secretary Bernhardt's former lobbying firm. It's as good a way as any to wrap up the year in swamp with Nicole Gentili from the Center for American Progress and my colleague Jesse Prentice Dunn here at CWP. Plus, we'll look back at how four Western states lost at the Supreme Court and paved the way for the fastest constitutional amendment in American history. But first, let's do the news. We've got a new national park, folks. White Sands, New Mexico was given national monument status back in 1933, and now it is officially a national park. The change was part of the defense spending bill that Congress just passed because the monument shared land with White Sands Missile Range, a military testing area and the site of the world's first atomic bomb detonation. So the bill that just passed tweaks the boundaries a bit. It gives the Pentagon 2,800 acres for easier access to that testing site, and it gives the Park Service 5,700 acres on the eastern side of the park. It is a net gain for the new national park, and it now means that visitors won't have to plan around weapons drills. The national park designation was championed by Senator Martin Heinrich. You'll recall he talked about this back when he was on this podcast in February. Another public lands champ, Congresswoman Xochitl Torres-Small, shepherded the bill through the House. And just to the west, the effort to protect the Grand Canyon from uranium mining now has a champion in the Senate. It's Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema who introduced a companion bill to go along with the House version that's backed by Natural Resources Committee Chairman Raul Grijalva. Now, it's noteworthy that this is the first time Senator Sinema has introduced a bill without a Republican co-sponsor. Senator Martha McSally, who Cinema beat back in November of 2018, but was then appointed to the Senate anyway, is not on board with the bill, at least at this point. So all this means that uranium and the Grand Canyon could end up as a campaign issue next year in the special election to fill John McCain's seat. Former astronaut Mark Kelly, the only major Democrat in the race at this point, is already on the record supporting the proposal to ban future uranium claims around the Grand Canyon. McSally, by the way, is looking south with a bill that would give national park status to Chiricahua National Monument east of Tucson. McSally had introduced a similar bill several years ago when she was in the House. And one final news item for you in 2019, the fight for permanent funding of the Land and Water Conservation Fund will be back again next year. The spending package that President Trump just signed includes $495 million for LWCF, but only for this year. Now, that is the most Congress has given LWCF in 17 years, but it means that $400 million that LWCF brings in from offshore oil drilling is still being diverted away from our parks. So while the Land and Water Conservation Fund was permanently authorized by Congress earlier this year, the spending bill shows why permanent funding is still so important going forward. Let's say hello to our guests this week. Nicole Gentili is the Deputy Director for Public Lands at the Center for American Progress. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. And Jesse Prentice Dunn uh, is a familiar voice. He's the Policy Director here at the Center for Western Priorities. Good afternoon. So the reason I wanted to sit down with the two of you 
is because you both recently put out some eye-opening research into how giant corporations are having their way with America's public lands. Nicole's piece focused on multinational mining corporations and how outdated laws let them pillage American lands for free. And Jesse's research tracked how Interior Secretary David Bernhardt's former lobbying firm is cashing in by adding clients left and right who then get exactly what they want from Bernhardt and his political appointees. So, Nicole, let's start with you and mining. Uh, what did you find here? Well, the new CAP report looks at the General Mining Act of 1872, which you may or may not be familiar with. It's a nearly 150-year-old law. I remember when it was passed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we were all around then. Um, and it still is the law in the books that governs mining for uranium, for gold, for silver, for a lot of precious uh, metals and minerals on U.S. public lands. And... A lot has already been written about it, so you may be familiar with it, um, but what has really been focused on is how it's really antiquated. Um, it was written with a goal of settling the West back when mining was conducted with a pickaxe and a mule, and is nothing like the highly mechanized and scaled up version of mining that we are familiar with today, and that makes hard rock mining the number one toxic polluter uh, in the country. Um, and then a lot of research out there is also focused on how this mining law allows companies to mine on public lands for free, does not pay taxpayers anything. Um, but what our analysis focused on is something that hasn't received a lot of attention, and it's who is actually benefit benefiting from this outdated law. And our analysis finds that in the case of uranium and gold, at least, it is foreign companies. Um, and in fact, 100% of companies that are producing uranium in the U.S. are not headquartered in the U.S. Wow. And um, in the case of gold, it's 64% of companies that are foreign-owned. Um, so it's bad news. And in other words, thanks to this 150-year-old law, foreign companies are reaping profits on your public lands. They are leaving behind a toxic legacy of waste, and they are paying exactly $0 to U.S. taxpayers. So this is essentially, this is a vestige of manifest destiny that is somehow exactly. still on the books 150 years later. Are, are there any parallels uh, to a law this broad and this old governing industry in America today? <laughs> I cannot think of a single industry of this scale and this polluting power that is governed by a law from 1872. Uh, I'd be interested to hear if any of your <laughs> listeners can think of a parallel, but um, even Congress back in 1920 recognize how inadequate this was and pulled oil and gas and coal out of the 1872 General Mining Act and put it under the Mineral Leasing Act. Um, that has its own problems. Uh, we could do a whole podcast just on the Mineral Leasing Act. Royalty um, rates. Royalty rates yep. and all of that. But at least there are royalties that are paid to U.S. taxpayers, whereas under the General Mining Act, nada. And these companies, I'm going to go on, on, on a limb and assume uh, one of these must be also involved in this Twin Metals, Minnesota, Jared Kushner thing that folks might have heard about in the... Uh in the news. Yeah, I mean, there's mining, hard rock mining in this country is a disaster. People have absolutely heard about that. Um, the Twin Metals case is not on public lands, so it's not technically uh, governed by the 1872 Mining Act, but it does highlight that BLM doesn't tell you what is and isn't 
um, on public lands. They don't keep a list of companies that are mining on U.S. public lands. Um, in fact, the best way that you can do it is sort of backing into it using minerals yearbooks and Energy Information Administration um, reports. But there's no list that BLM keeps that says who's operating on public lands and whether they're foreign owned. Wow. So there's also some transparency issues here. Right. Uh, what, what is the solution? What does reforming the 1872 mining law look like? Yes. So reforming the 1872 mining law, it's 147 years and counting. It is long overdue. Um, We touched on this a little bit. Absolutely need to require a royalty that's on par with other extractive industries, at least. It should probably be even higher given how um, toxic the the pollution is that comes from hard rock mining. Um, Making sure that there's just some sort of backstop to make sure cultural, iconic, and ecologically sensitive places are off limits, um, and that um, public lands managers have the power to say, no, you can't mine here. It's too special. It's too um, important. Absolutely need to establish a meaningful bonding requirement and set standards for reclamation. That just like does not exist right now at the level that it should. A requirement um, that you be able to clean up the mess you make. Clean up the mess you make and make sure that you are you have a third party that's going to ensure that that's going to happen. Um, then have mining companies pay into abandoned mine cleanup. This happens for coal. It doesn't happen for the hard rock mining industry. And Americans overwhelmingly believe in poll after poll that the mining companies that are leaving the waste should be the ones helping to pay up, pay for the um, legacy of waste on, on public lands, not taxpayers. Right now, taxpayers are on the hook mm-hmm. for all of that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, absolutely need to require consultation with the tribes and then lay out some clear guidelines for protest and legal recourse uh, unfortunately they just the tribes are just not brought in in a reasonable amount of reasonable time frame with a lot of these projects and uh, lots of times public lands managers and tribal governments are powerless to say no um, and then we need to collect more data and make it publicly available you alluded to the fact that there's a huge transparency issue with um, uh, with data and information that BLM collects and then makes available. So that's really hard for watchdogs and, t- and taxpayer groups who care about this to have any of the information they need to hold the government accountable. I mean, it, one thing Nicole is pointing out is there's such a broad and intense need to reform this law. And this is where it's kind of going to wrap into some of the research we've been doing. The mining industry spends millions on lobbyists, and there is a reason why it hasn't been reformed yet. Um, and they've got just an army of folks on Capitol Hill trying to preserve the status quo. And it's it's pretty um, important to note that David Bernhardt was one of those folks on Capitol Hill trying to keep this outdated system in place. So it's kind of a confluence of uh, 1872 meets the swamp. And obviously, any solution here cannot come then at the rulemaking level from within the Interior Department. It's going to have to come from Congress. It, ostensibly, I mean, there, there's some ways to nibble around the edges, but large um, institutional change has to come through Congress. So, Jesse, let's talk about your research then into the swamp and Secretary Bernhardt and his former lobbying firm. Uh, the bottom line here from your numbers, these guys are cashing in. Big time. So uh, we looked at lobbying disclosure forms that folks are uh, required to fill out when they're lobbying uh, Congress and the administration. And we found that uh, David Bernhardt's former lobbying firm, a group called Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Schreck, since his nomination to join the administration, they have raked in $12 million from clients specifically for lobbying the Interior Department. 
that includes 19 new clients that signed up after his nomination. Clearly, you know, they knew where his bread was buttered, so they're trying to get their access that way. And I think the critical part of this is that of these 36 clients that were paying his former firm, two-thirds of them have seen some action on their projects or policies. And I suppose if you're Brownstein Hyatt, this is a point of pride then. You hire us, give us your money, and we will get you what you want thanks to our former partner who's running the interior department. Yeah, I mean, late this year, uh, they formally became the top grossing lobbying firm in the country. It's a powerhouse. And so they are peddling access for money. uh, And apparently they're doing it pretty well. So is any of this illegal or is it just really, really swampy? You know, probably most of it is legal. And these are folks that are paying lobbyists. They're disclosing it. They're having meetings. Um, You know, there is some question. David Bernhardt was uh, formally supposed to be recused from anything involving his former law firm, Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek, for two years. And in that time, what we've seen is some of these clients have gotten gotten some of these projects through. So there's there's a gray area, but uh, certainly no no smoking gun for illegal activity. But if if David Bernhardt said, I'm not going to do this and myself, but sends his deputy, Catherine McGregor, who's currently awaiting Senate confirmation, she can go have these meetings, promise whatever she wants, report back to Bernhardt. Bernhardt can wipe his hands and say, well, I had nothing to do with that. And that's all technically within the bounds of the law, basically. Oh, absolutely. There are many ways to skirt it. And uh, they appear good at that. So what's the solution? I mean, this is part of the, I guess, a much bigger picture on money and corporate influence in politics. Uh, is this is there a need for stronger ethics laws, better, quicker disclosure, just banning, lobbying? What what do you do here? Well, you know, I think a big part of this is attention with public input. And at the same time that these folks are taking meetings with lobbyists and making decisions on behalf of corporations, they're also taking actions to shut out the public. And I think if you look at some of the research we've done, the the tangible things. um, So let's talk about a couple examples real quick, because this this will show it. Um, So uh, Trilogy Metals, a foreign-owned uh, mining company that wants to uh, build a mine in Alaska, uh, needs a 211-mile access road crossing gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve to get there. Um, the you know they hired. It's a long but, road. It's a long road. It's Alaska. There aren't many roads around. Um, but they hired um, Bernhardt's old firm. Um, And then a month later, got a draft environmental study out of the BLM moving forward with it. What happened during that draft environmental study? Uh, Hunters, uh, anglers, conservationists opposed it because this road is going to be closed to the public. It's going to damage seasonal hunting and fishing. There are significant impacts on recreation in the national park. So this is a thing where the public has been opposed to it, raised serious concerns, and yet you've got uh, a foreign mining company paying um, lobbyists with access, and they're probably going to get what they want. Over the all the local objections. Uh, any other good examples we should be watching out for here? Well, uh, let's do another mining one. Yeah. Um, we can go through a couple. Is but, this Rocky Mountain? Uh, yeah. So uh, Rocky Mountain Resources, a mining company owned by the son of the founder of uh, Bernhardt's former lobbying oh, firm. Oh, connections to connections. Yes, uh, wants to expand a limestone mine outside of Glenwood Springs, Colorado, a thriving tourist town, got iconic hot springs there. Um, The town is staunchly opposed to it. I've never heard of this before, but the town has ponied up $1.2 to fight it. This is a small town. That's a 
yeah. chunk of change from yeah. this big chunk of change. Okay. Uh, and they've uh, gotten all the surrounding cities to oppose it. Um, but at the same time, this mine owner has hired the lobbying firm to lobby for him, do all their legal work. So the son has hired the dad to lobby the former employee. Yeah, this, right. this was Bernhardt's old boss. Um, so this is a, an area where I'd be very curious to see how it plays out. But at least now, the Bureau of Land Management has accepted their application for a big mine expansion, and they're going to move forward with studying that in 2020. Wow. Uh, any other common threads here? Uh, obviously, the multinational corporations. I want to talk, ask about critical minerals and uranium because that's one of these underreported stories that seems like has been kind of cruising under the radar for a little bit is this one of these things we could see come to a head in 2020 yeah i mean i think this is all very on brand for the trump administration which is being captured by industry um, whether there are lobbyists involved or not and captured by foreign interests, uh, whether there are lobbyists involved or not. And um, so what Aaron just alluded to is recently two uranium companies that are operating in the U.S., but they are both headquartered abroad, um, asked this administration for a quota on U.S. produced uranium. So in response, Trump put together a nuclear fuels working group, which is made up of a bunch of high-level administration officials, and asked them for recommendations, how do we scale up and expand uranium mining in the United States? Um, this is a clear win for those foreign-owned companies. Um, and what we do know right now is that that report has already ended up on the um, president's desk. We don't know when the recommendations will be made public. Um, but the problem is that uranium is governed by the General Mining Act of 1872. And so this law that allows foreign companies to trounce all over public lands, to leave a mess, to not pay a dime to U.S. taxpayers, this is going to be the law that governs any ramping up of, of uranium mining in the West. Um, and when we're talking about uranium mining, we're talking about southern Utah and around the Grand Canyon, correct? Yes, that- exactly. So in, that's exactly what's likely going to happen is that um, this is – not the only only handout to the uranium mining industry. They recently, um, the Trump administration recently published a critical mineral strategy that aims to cut environmental review and would open more acres, rush to permit um, new mines on public lands, and would likely lead to rolling back bans around really special places in the West, like the Grand Canyon, um, and would likely lead to more mining in places that were protected and then had those protections rolled back, like Bears Ears National Monument. And let's talk about the lobbyist side of this real quick, because this is a really juicy part. Um, so one of the companies that asked for all of these favors is Energy Fuels Resources, a Canadian-owned uh, firm. Um, these folks have been uh, eyeball deep in trying to reduce protections. They operate a mine next to the Grand Canyon, want to see more mining around there. And they also hired Andrew Wheeler, uh, the head of the Environmental okay. Protection Agency, to lobby for them. And he lobbied to reduce the size of Bears Ears National Monument got what they wanted. I mean, these folks, this company was literally going around when uh, the interior secretary toured Bears Ears, handing out maps of what they wanted cut out of that monument, and they got it. And so I, I will say this is a Hail Mary for them. You know, I'm looking at their stock price right now. It's $1.86. They are in trouble. This is not a company in, in good financial shape. No. And so this is kind of like a, a Hail Mary of please help us. We're, we're about to go under. And I suppose that gets back to, to bonding requirements and can a company like Energy Fuels, where clearly they're, they're in a cash crunch already, could they afford to clean up the mess they make 
especially if that involves contaminating water around the Grand Canyon. Exactly. Right. Or will they just go bankrupt and leave local communities holding the bag, which is what we've seen time after time throughout the course of history. Particularly and why on the have... Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. All right, let's take a step back because this is our last episode of 2019, our last episode of the decade. All right, I won't ask you to do a decade in review, but let's <laughs> let, let's let's do a little a little year in review, highlights, lowlights, and set the stage for what folks should be looking for in 2020 when it comes to public lands, the Interior Department, what the Trump administration may or may not do, and what Congress may or may not do. Uh, as we get into into next year, man, that is a tough question. <laughs> I, I think when it when it comes to highlights, there are uh, a, a few things with Congress where there have been. Uh, you know, we're just getting news out today that we're going to get America's newest national park, White Sands in New Mexico. Some increased funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, even though it's not permanent and full funding. That is all good stuff. And, and the year started with a giant public lands bill passing. Exactly. Gosh, it's hard to think back. That, I, that was January, but yeah. it was just this, <laughs> just this year. And then, you know, on the lowlights, it's the continued march of industry giveaways on our, our public lands. I think it's just... Uh, it's remarkable. I mean, we've seen rules, safety rules rolled, ba- rolled back on offshore drilling that were done after the Deepwater Horizon. Uh, we've seen uh, lease sales in the Arctic National Wildlife advanced, uh, just increased leasing in wildlife corridors, sage grouse habitat near national parks. I mean, the beat goes on. Um, so it's certainly not a rosy picture. I have a highlight and a low light, which is if you remember, I guess it was, was it January 2nd? Of this year, Zinke was no longer Secretary of the Interior. David Bernhardt's David, been only been here for less than a year as Secretary. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the low light part of it, which is um, David Bernhardt has been in there being swampy and really steadily getting things done. He's proven that he can get things done, and he is attacking um, for all the things that Jesse just laid out. He's attacking the environment left and right. Um, I think that, yes, we did start out the year with um, President Trump signing a sweeping bipartisan public lands package, but let's remember that he's actually unprotected 13 and a half million acres. I think that is a, a low light and we're gonna just continue to be able to see those acres um, stack up. And if, if this is if this is the last year coming up, we're gonna see that just continuing and we're gonna need to be keeping our eyes on how many acres are being unprotected and then what we need to do to get these places back, back in, in protection when we hopefully have an administration that eventually cares about the environment, cares about public lands. Well, and on that note, come January, there will be uh, roughly a year left on on this current administration, um, should they be one term or not. And I think there's a, a recognition, as happens with all administrations, that time is running out um, and that they've got a lot of stuff on their list that they want to accomplish in that time. And so that's something where uh, you know, I think we'll be watching more oil and gas safeguards be rolled back, more lease sales happening. I did, you know, possibly uh, a rollback of the California Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan. So this is something that we'll be monitoring for the next year. And I presume more potential rule changes then if they're going to try and get stuff finalized and into the, the federal register. They've, they've got a clock ticking on them. Absolutely. I, I, you mentioned Ryan Zinke. I suppose it's worth pointing out that among Ryan Zinke's new employers, in addition to his bizarre cryptocurrency scheme, uh, he is working for a gold company. So everything 
comes full circle. Yeah, and, and just just to go back to the ties between these two pieces of research, if you look at the 36 clients that Bernhardt's former firm is representing, a full quarter of those are foreign-owned. And of the mining companies that they are going to bat for, four of the five are foreign-owned. The, the fifth one, the one that's not included in that, is owned by the son of the law firm's founder. <laughs> so it's, it's wow. a swampy picture. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to leave the swampiness there for now. Nicole Gentili with the Center for American Progress. Jesse Prentice Dunn here at the Center for Western Priorities. Thank you both and uh, happy holidays and happy new year. Thank happy you. New year. Thanks. Let's wrap up with a look back at this week in Western history. As we head into an election year, voting rights are once again taking center stage. So we're going back to this week in 1970 when Western states led the fight against expanding who could vote, and they lost. Congress that year had passed major amendments to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because several provisions of the original act had five-year sunset clauses. In addition to extending those parts of the law, Congress added several other new provisions. One created uniform rules around voter registration and absentee voting in presidential elections, Another barred literacy tests in every state, not just the ones that had been included in the original Voting Rights Act. And finally, Congress lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. Senator Ted Kennedy championed that provision, convincing Congress that if 18-year-olds could be drafted and sent to die for their country in Vietnam, they ought to be able to vote for the leaders sending them there. President Nixon doubted that provision was constitutional, so he ordered his attorney general, John Mitchell, to expedite a court test. That case moved very quickly. Mitchell sued Arizona and Idaho for failing to enforce the law. Arizona, over its literacy test that disenfranchised Latino and Native American voters, Idaho, over its residency requirements. At the same time, Oregon and Texas sued the federal government to keep their voting age at 21. The Supreme Court combined those four cases and heard arguments in October. The case became known as Oregon versus Mitchell. Just a few months later, December 21st, 1970, the court ruled, and it was not one of the court's great moments of clarity. Eight justices were split four to four over whether Congress had the power to set voter qualifications in any election, state, local, or federal. That left Justice Hugo Black as the swing vote, and he essentially split the baby, saying that Congress could lower the voting age to 18 but only for federal elections. In other words, states that kept their local voting age at 21 would have to maintain two voter rolls and print up two sets of ballots. Well, no one was terribly happy without outcome. So four months later, March of 1971, Congress passed the 26th Amendment that set a standard voting age of 18 in all elections. It was ratified by the states faster than any previous amendment. It took just 105 days for 38 states to approve it. And since then, the Constitution has only been amended one other time, barring Congress from giving itself a pay raise within a session of Congress. That, by the way, was the slowest amendment, having been passed during the very first Congress in 1789 and not ratified by three-fourths of the states until 1992. Two other notes, real quick, on the 26th Amendment and Oregon versus Mitchell. It doesn't really matter, but seven states still have not ratified that amendment, including Utah, New Mexico, and Nevada. And while states now can't raise the voting age above 18, 
the amendment doesn't say anything about whether states could lower the voting age below it. And at least one state is now looking at doing just that, amending the state constitution to allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote. The legislators who introduced that amendment say they are inspired by high schoolers who are mobilizing to fight gun violence. If voters passed such an amendment, it could lead to yet another Supreme Court battle. And here's the kicker. It looks like the first state that could end up lowering its voting age is Oregon, the same state that lost its fight to keep the voting age at 21 49 years ago this week in Western history. And that's it. You have made it through another year of Go West Young podcast. Thanks to Jesse Prentice Dunn and Nicole Gentilly for joining the show today. And thanks to all of you for listening. I have had a blast doing the podcast this year, especially getting to do a bunch of episodes on the road over the summer and fall. Go back and listen to those if you, if you haven't yet. We're already looking to do some more special episodes next year. If you enjoy this and what we're doing here, please share this episode with a friend or better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please keep your emails coming. Podcast at westernpriorities.org is where to send them. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, have a very happy holiday season, whatever you are celebrating this year, and we will see you in 2020.